0: Hello again, and welcome to the Global Exchange. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On today's episode, an excerpt from our foreign affairs conference, After the War, What Kind of World for Canada? It took place on May the 10th, 2022 at the Rideau Club. The conference was made possible thanks to the support of our strategic sponsors, Lockheed Martin Canada, General Dynamics, Irving Shipbuilding, Davy Shipyard, and our conference bronze supporters, Enbridge, and TD. Now you'll hear moderator Maureen Boyd in conversation with the Right Honourable Joe Clark, the Honourable Bob Ray, and Meredith Preston-McGee on how to make rules-based multilateralism work for democracies.
1: Welcome to uh, new alliances, new institutions. How do we make rules-based multilateralism work for democracies? Now, I could just just ask that one question to each of them but i will shape the conversation a little bit and start with the right honorable um joe clark and joe after serving as prime minister of course and as foreign minister you've devoted your post-politics life to uh, promoting internationalism through uh, multilateral institutions including the u.n uh and regional institutions especially in africa But it seems um, particularly post 9-11 that worldwide policy preoccupations with security and with trade have kind of pushed multilateralism uh, to the back burner. So with a growing divide between autocracies and democracies, with growing authoritarianism, with uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is multilateralism getting a new priority? And where does Canada fit in?
2: Multilateralism. Thank you very much, by the way, for the opportunity to to be here with this distinguished uh, panel. And forgive me for using notes. I've learned a long time ago that uh, I am somewhat more to the point when I uh, when I do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, multilateralism has to become more effective, and the point I'm going to try to make today is that Canada is unusually equipped to be a very effective multilateralist. We were for a long time, unless we, until we let that priority slip uh, because of our preoccupation with trade and now with security. It has become a sort of a uh, third line in terms of sequence. Uh, and yet it is an area where, for reasons I hope to elaborate on, uh, we, we have some very unusual capacities. I'm a little bit concerned about your phrase "rules-based uh, multilateralism." I think that that is almost an economic or a trade uh, a trade term. One of the uh, realities about uh, multilateralism is that its focus is on bringing differing parties together to seek constructive solutions. The phrase "rules-based" might distract us. What's critical is the shared will to agree. In my experience, when that shared will exists and is regularly and skillfully uh, reinforced, uh, rules will emerge. Most important agreements are unique, shaped by the issues and the evidence and the personalities and the inventiveness of the parties. It's the opposite of cookie cutting or a formula. Serious multilateralism is both an urgent international requirement, but in our case, it's important to emphasize it is also a genuine Canadian capacity, more so in Canada's case than that of almost any other nation uh, one convention. I don't say that idly. I think that is an objective fact. We are domestically and historically a multilateral nation. Our federation is inherently multilateralist. Uh, and when we try, uh, there is a repeated record of agreeing on generous and respectful and inclusive common ground in a very diverse uh, country. We are increasingly multicultural. And yet with all of that, we are relatively harmonious in terms of the way those cultures work together. Our historic identity and experience has been as a colony, not as a colonist. And if that sounds like a phrase, let me tell you, when you were dealing with people in in Sub-Saharan Africa and elsewhere, that is a real Canadian credential, an asset that uh, we should be able to use. And it remains, that idea that we are part of the whole, not superior to the whole, that remains a, a part of our national state of mind uh, compared to other, rep- other Western nations. It also remains a part of our reputation. And for a long period of time, we acted as a highly creative multilateralist from the work of our diplomats in shaping and driving some of the world's most important multilateral treaties, including on the law of the sea, from CETA's extraordinary role as a leader of international development, to, and you can't imagine how hard it is for me to say this next part, to Lloyd Axworthy's. (laughs) (laughs) To Lloyd Axworthy's successful initiatives using Canada's convening power to drive both the international criminal court and the responsibility to protect. Now, I could mention other Canadian initiatives, but I'm too modest to, uh, to do that. <laughs> the instinct and capacity constitute one of Canada's main gateways to having real impact in a dangerous and dividing world. It was a driving and defining component of our international identity in the creative institutional building decades after the second war. Then gradually, that instinct has been nudged aside, I don't think ever is a deliberate policy matter, just nudged aside by the worldwide policy preoccupations with trade and now with security. Yet it is suddenly much more relevant than ever. It is a power, powerful, contemporary, distinguishing Canadian asset. It's in our bones and it is our nature and it is in our interest as a renewable national resource which is relatively rare in the world and unusually pertinent. The impact is real of these things. They're not a flash on a screen. They're not a moment for publicity. They're not in and out. These are engagements where if we engage seriously using our remarkable talents, as we have often in the past, uh, we can make a real difference. And as you look anywhere in the world, look at Latin America now. Look at the tumult in Latin America that is causing Uh, some of its it's coordinating institutions to fall apart that is creating great uh, concern among uh, among leaders there look anywhere in the world there is a need for trusted um, conciliatory intermediaries we can play that kind of role uh, it is a, it is high time that we gave priority. I'm not pushing aside trade. I'm not pushing aside uh, security or these other matters. I'm simply saying that this was once our signature for a very good reason, and the times need that signature again. Aren't you glad I wrote my notes? <laughs>
1: <laughs> thanks, thanks, Joe, for that. You know, strong statement in support of uh, multilateralism, and we we can you know talk more uh, about specific parts of it, but let me just first go to Meredith Preston-McGee. And Meredith, uh, you've worked in Africa, you now lead our center for pluralism, but how um, can multilateralism work with rogue actors? And you know, uh, the examples I'm gonna use, you're familiar with, we still witness persecution of minorities in the biggest nation, China and religious persecution in the second biggest nation, India. Tribalism continues to be a source of conflict in Africa and Asia. So obviously there's no easy fixes, but can multilateralism be part of the remedy?
3: Oh, I, I mean, absolutely. And, and following on from Joe, how could I not say that it's going to be part of the remedy? But um, I think one of the first things you sort of mentioned that that there are no um, easy fixes to this, to this sort of complex web of problems. But at the same time, I think we crave easy fixes and listening to all of the panels this morning, it really feels like one of the things that we're up against is that populist rhetoric, misinformation and so forth has a defining characteristic of sounding simple, of sounding like it can be grasped. And a lot of the challenges and issues that we're talking about are complex and nuanced. They don't fit in a sound bite. They don't fit on a bumper sticker. They're hard to tweet effectively about, although I think of you tweet effectively about a lot of these things, <laughs> but we need to be more, um, um, former mayor, she was on a panel with me a couple of weeks ago and he said we need to be more muscular in how we approach pluralism, multilateralism, these progressive values abroad. We we need not be afraid of those things. And I think to Roland's point that that doesn't necessarily mean we stand and shout them from the rooftops, but we need to be more strategic about how we understand these and approach these. And from my perspective, a background as, a, as sort of a mediator and peacemaker before I took on this role, that doesn't necessarily mean walking up to China and talking about the weaker problem, or walking up to, um, to India and talking about um, the need for um, simply respect for, uh, for religious pluralism, or going to the Taliban and talking only about girls' education. I think that there are a number of other things in between that we need to be doing. And so just even thinking this morning about the discussions related to the, um, the war in Ukraine, when I think about multilateralism and the building of alliances, I think really critically about Africa, which hasn't really been mentioned enough here. I, I spent 23 years of my life um, living in East Africa and thinking about the alliances that we could be building with like-minded governments and societies, a more inclusive approach, not just thinking about the governments, but the societies more largely that we could be connecting with. And the world view about what these institutions have done for them as countries and societies is very different. It's much more skeptical if you look on the African continent about how they see the United Nations or the World Bank or the IMF or the International Criminal Court, those they, those are complicated relationships. But I think that as Canada, we can play a really important bridging role to connect, to understand where some of those concerns come and how we can actually generate a wider support. Because I absolutely agree with you, but we can't be the lone voice for this. We have to start marshalling a wider constituency. And it, it needs to come also from latin america from africa from these different places where we can see a collective understanding that we're all struggling with similar issues you talk about these issues of intolerance and other in other places we're not immune to it here as we've heard this morning and we know there's even more that we need to look at that enhances our credibility as a country the fact that we are struggling with reconciliation with our own past, the importance of reconciliation with Indigenous communities in Canada strengthens our credibility when I talk to people abroad. We can say that we're struggling. It makes us a better partner. It makes us a more authentic partner around the world, and that's a real value. That's something that we need to use more muscularly. Of course, the wider questions of China and Russia will come, but there is so much more out there that I think Canada really could do something with and could be this trusted partner that you, that you describe as we, as we go forward and really marshal a bigger consensus for how we want the world.
1: Thanks, Meredith. And you mentioned the Russian invasion of Ukraine, as did many other um, people earlier. So let's use that as an example. And so, Bob, uh, Secretary General Guterres, acknowledges the UN and especially the Security Council has failed on Ukraine. The General Assembly did condemn Russia, but only a handful of nations, the liberal democracies, we know them, the G7, NATO, EU, Switzerland, uh, New Zealand, Australia, Korea, Singapore, maybe I've forgotten one or two, but uh, they, they're the only ones that have applied sanctions. So we've talked about UN reform since its inception, but nothing happens. Um, it, is the UN gonna go the way of the League of Nations? Or, and what does that mean for multilateralism?
4: uh well first of all uh, thank you so much uh maureen and and thanks to my fellow panelists if i was if this was a court i would just say i concur with both my colleagues (laughs) shut up uh because i really do i really do agree with them very strongly and and i think um there's some important things that have been said here that i think need to be need to be emphasized um i'm history Somebody said history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it it stutters. So we have to be aware of the fact that, uh, yes, the, the fate of the League of Nations is not in totally dissimilar from uh, what can happen at the United Nations. No question about that. Um, we don't have to go through all the history to show what can happen. But one of the things I think we need to really appreciate is that the UN is itself has become a very complex institution. It's not a simple place. It's not just the Security Council. It's not just uh, the General Assembly. It's all of the institutions that the United Nations has created that we've created, uh, including the court, including the Court of Justice, including all of the other legal institutions, accountability institutions, but also the development institutions, which are critical for um, for the meaning of the UN in most countries. So. I would say that if you take for example Ukraine, uh, the UN has responded incredibly effectively to the humanitarian crisis. Uh, it has not responded effectively to the political crisis uh, because of the Security Council. And frankly because, as, as, always, as often happens, the member states that are interested in doing something um, have other ways of getting together. So there's more than one multilateral institution, the UN is not the only one. My, my, I guess, comment that I would make to focus a little bit and build on what Joe and and Marina have said said, is this, look, you need to understand it's not when the U.S., for example, withdrew from the WHO in a moment of impulse. The trouble with Trumpian impulses is they don't think about consequences. And it assumes that the assumption in Trump's head, I assume, was Well, if we really punish the hell out of this institution, that'll teach them. That's not what happened. Other countries stepped up, like China. (laughs) Wherever there's a void in anything we do, whether it's peacekeeping, uh, whether it's lending money, whatever it is, China will fill that. And Russia will do something, not necessarily fill it because they don't have the scope and the economic power to do it. And they also don't have the the vision and the patience, which was described by Francis Fukuyama, to do it as either. The Russians are, and this is, I would have said this before Ukraine even, they're really good at tearing things down, at breaking things up, at making sure something doesn't happen. The Chinese have a much broader sense of what is the project. It's much, much bigger than that. So when we talk about our engagement or disengagement or relative degree of engagement, we need to understand that it's a constantly moving kaleidoscope. Um, it's not one where we say, do we want to join this world or not? We don't have a choice. The question is, how effectively do we do it? And if we don't do it more effectively, uh, which means being more persistent, uh, more and sometimes more patient, but certainly more persistent and more present, uh, then we will lose out uh, and others will, will, <laughs> will are more likely to win out. The second thing is the importance of thinking about alliances And institutional associations in new ways of understanding what are the range of countries that have a common interest with us. And the thing that I've learned in the last two years of my job in New York is there are a range of countries that have a range of interests on a range of issues, and you're never sure who's going to be in this group and who's not going to be in it. And it's we we people would say to me at the beginning, well, we need to go with the like-minded, and I said, look, the like minded concept is not a static thing there are countries that can be like-minded with us uh, because of similar experiences and similar views but they may not be like-minded on other things so we have to be really effective and really nimble at building up these relationships in all parts of the world understanding that for some purposes we won't have some countries but for other purposes we will and then there are the countries with which we have to have a relationship simply by virtue of either their size their importance uh, or their impact. And those are countries with which we cannot afford to say, those are really bad people. Uh, We don't agree with them on anything. So therefore, why are we talking to them or why are we engaging with them? And one of my battles (laughs) inside and outside has been to say, there are a lot of people that you have to talk to, including your enemies, uh, including people you don't like and you don't agree with. And you have to, a capable, mature diplomacy is not about cutting off diplomatic relations because you don't like somebody, but it's about figuring out how do you maintain a level of engagement and ability to talk and to engage, not because of any naive view that you might change their minds, but simply because you have to know what they're thinking. I don't believe in shutting down embassies. I don't believe in in closing off doors. I don't believe in preventing our diplomats from talking to other people. I think that's exactly the wrong approach that we should, we should be taking. And just to respond to the last point, just to respond to something that John said this morning, uh, it, and it's a bit of a disagreement, but it's, it's also uh, not really a total disagreement. There was a great, great radio broadcaster from Kingston whose name was Max Jackson. I don't know whether anybody, Queens will remember Max Jackson. And his sign-off used later. his sign-off could be his sign-off used to be his signature farewell on the radio was, if you want to have a friend, be one. And I think that's got to be a bit of a slogan for us if we want to have friends in the world. If we're feeling lonely, uh, then make a phone call, connect with other countries, and for God's sake, engage because we can't afford to engage. And when we engage, whether it's diplomacy, defense or development, or values, it has to be robust. And I fear that sometimes we think there are quick wins. There's this phrase I hate, low-hanging fruit. There's things we can do that aren't complicated. And you sort of say, guys, we are a G7 country. <laughs> we're a country of almost 40 million people. We're not a tiny country. And we we have every reason for our diplomacy to be more robust, than frankly, than it is. And we need to think about how we can do that.
1: Yeah, I want to come back to to that idea of robust diplomacy um, in in a few moments. But, um, you know, in in this panel, in this room, there's a lot of historical perspective. And that doesn't mean you're we're old. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm reminded of the Chinese expression that 100 years is but a blink of an eyelid. Um, But Joe referred to Lloyd and. It has been almost 30 years since Canada led this human security agenda that resulted in the International Criminal Court and the Landmines Treaty and the UN Resolution on Arms and Child Soldiers and where's R2P, Um, but forget that there's now talk of a corruption court. Um, and a parliamentary assembly at the UN modeled on the EU. Is this something that Canada should be leading on or should we be focusing on reforming, uh, you know, existing institutions like the WHO and the WTO, where Canada is leading on dispute uh, settlement uh, uh, reforms? Is
4: that
1: for me? Or- it could be, oh, you, Joe, Joe, Joe looked like you were going to start. What? So jump, jump in and then then we'll go down the line again if you want.
2: I don't want to give up at all on existing institutions, but I think one of our rare capacities, really rare, not many other countries have it, is that we can institute things. And it's not simply uh, our professional diplomats who are excellent uh, who could do that. Uh, some time ago, uh, in my last days as, uh, as foreign minister, a couple of academics came to me to talk about the need for a North Pacific cooperative security Uh, initiative. Uh, And um, my department, I have to say, my excellent department was not exactly enthusiastic. They had some other things in their mind. We went ahead. Uh, And uh, that initiative became a a very effective uh, initiative in in Asia and Pacific, trying to instill some kind of a green basis in that region that had been done by the OECD and others in, in Europe. Now, I have to say, that it did not survive my departure from the Department of External Affairs, and it was picked up very quickly by the University of San Diego and others, and is a going concern. Mm-hmm. The point is that we have a capacity to initiate our trust basis, not just the current trust basis, but our historic trust bases. Meredith has lived along, lived and worked on the hard ground in Africa for a long time, uh, and she would know this better than I, but I certainly know from my experience there Uh, The the fact that we were engaged uh, in CETA, when CETA began, uh, two out of three of its dollars uh, were spent initially in Africa. In the anti-apartheid campaign, the capacity to draw together people from the most diverse and conflicting of countries uh, to come to a consensus on that matter, to take the place, by the way, the place of leadership because the British could no longer uh, exercise it, that, was, that is an indication not of the historic past. That is an indication of the kinds of things that we can do if we will look forward. Now, none of those was particularly a publicity measure. We didn't get a lot of credit at home for doing that. We did it because there was a need for it to be done, and there was a capacity for us to uh, not to dominate, but to lead, to draw others in. Are there other opportunities like that? Yes, I think they are multiple. Should we be careful about them and selective and not try to do everything at once? Yes, of course. But I th- And the other thing about this is, and I could be dead wrong on this, I'm not sure I understand the contemporary world, but the world I used to understand, the Canadian public world that I used to understand, would have supported a lot of these measures, not swarming into the streets to support it, but by and large saying that is something the government of Canada should be doing. And I think that that will probably become even more the case as we ourselves become less a European country, as we reflect more societies from which, uh, uh, in which so many of these, uh, these problems incubate. So I think it's not just an opportunity for us. I think this is on the edge of being a real obligation for Canada and one in which we have multiple track records, which we should be pursuing.
3: If I could say, I, I think that... Um... When we look at new initiatives though, we also need to learn really clear-eyed lessons about why some of these other institutions aren't doing what they need to do. And I think the ICC is a really interesting, powerful example. As a peacemaker for 20 years, people talked about the justice peace nexus. We sort of don't talk about it anymore because the, the this the ICC's approaches have not brought us where we need to go, but rather than saying, well, we need to reform it, maybe we need a stronger prosecutor, maybe we need some prosecutions against some of the big powers, some of these big questions. Why, is, why has this not got traction in places where we think it could have? And so just as an example, I um, had the privilege of working with Kofi Annan on the um, post-election mediation in Kenya in 2008. And of course, at that time you had overwhelming consensus in Kenya, don't be vague, go to The Hague. And it was across, across ethnic lines, across political classes, everyone wanted an accountability process in Kenya. The case of that unraveling to a point where several of the indictments were, were set aside, the then now sitting president of the country was still um, on trial. Uh, over Kenyatta, he was told he had to come to The Hague. He said, can I do it by Zoom? They said no. And he did one of the best, I think, populist political moments that I've seen a president do. He called joint session of the two houses. He announced that he was handing over the presidency to his deputy president, sometimes rival deputy president. He drove himself, more or less, to the airport, he flirted outrageously with the check-in counter of Kenya Airways. He got on the plane, he went to The Hague, he beat the case because of course he had lawyers that that cost more than probably the combined salaries of all of us in this room for 10 years. And then he came back and he restored the mantle of Kenyan sovereignty. He took back the presidency, he'd beaten the case. And then the story was Kenya pushes back against Western meddling. This was Kenya's national pride. And when you talk to people on the streets, extraordinarily, there was this sense of pride in that moment. The response by the ICC, and I happened to be with the prosecutor the day after this had happened, was a technical press release about Mm -hmm. the case. And at the end of the day, her arguments then, and and I, I understand the constraints that that specific office may be under, was, well, that's all we're allowed to do. But there wasn't this groundswell of, but we need accountability for what happened. Accountability can be the ICC, it can be a whole bunch of other things that Kenya failed to do, which is why the cases went to the ICC. But that entire narrative has vanished. And so I think we need to learn some of these lessons also about when these institutions do feel like they fail. For example, the people of Kenya, which is how it feels in Kenya. We have to figure out what we can do that isn't necessarily the standard budgetary reforms or some of these other pieces. What do we do to help these institutions do something different? Because an anti-corruption court will face the exact same challenges if we don't learn the lessons from the past.
4: I think the the, the point I wanted to make is is that we we have identified through frankly through a very innovative Canadian initiative that not very many people know about. But my predecessor at the UN, Marc Andre Blanchard, created. Uh, a group of friends in the UN on financing development that uh, was with Jamaica and with the Secretariat. I succeeded him in that because he just said, "Here's projects underway, keep going." When I got there, we were in the middle of COVID, so we transformed it into a discussion about the financial impact of COVID. And it, it we produced an incredible number of recommendations. We commissioned a lot of, a lot of studies. And I, I think that the architecture of what the future is going to look like is, is going to at least be partly contained in those documents. One of them has to do with the significance of illicit financial flows and another way—a of fancy way of saying corruption and where does corrupt money go. And I think one of the things that the Ukraine experience with sanctions is teaching us that the financial institutions now have a much better sense of where the money is and how much money there is that's, that's flowed illicitly in the last 30 years. And how much of it is stashed away, how much of it is being misused and abused. Can we create an international institution to deal with that? Yes, I think we can. It's gonna take a lot of time. It's not something you say we're gonna do this next week. I'm, for my sins, I'm also the vice president of the assembly of states parties of the ICC. So I can assure you we are very aware <laughs> Of the limitations of the ICC, but I think it's also important to remember this is a new institution, and it's very, very difficult. It was it was a huge reach that we made in the 80s and 90s with with the establishment of the court. We still have most countries of large size, India, China, Russia, the United States, who are not who have not signatories to the to the Rome to Rome Treaty. If you're going to have effective international institutions, they have to be international. And as long as you have a bunch of countries like the ones I've just mentioned that think of themselves as being exceptional and they don't have to do it, they don't want to do it, they're not part of the universe as much as they are kings of the universe. And we all know that imperial habits die very hard. and We've seen that, I think, in the last while. Um, It's not going to be easy. But I do think that we very clearly have to identify um, criminal cr- international criminality and the criminal use of money and the extent to which we're not yet able to regulate that part of human activity effectively as a huge gap in our in our structure we've created an architecture that's not not by any means complete or perfect there's a lot more to be done to, to build it um but it's going to take a huge amount of time and effort to do it and we have to i think we've been able to identify that's one where we need to move forward but we also have to learn the lessons from what happened what did we do wrong the last time how do we do it better next time
1: I asked uh, Meredith, you know, referred to earlier about, you know, how does multilateralism deal with rogue actors? And let's just broaden that a little bit, because if the, you know, if the world's moving into a divide between autocracies and democracies and something that Biden and Xi and Putin all seem to agree on, um, then are, how, how should Canada be leading on that in terms of multilateralism? I mean, how will that work? What kinds of institutions do we need for dealing with this you know, dichotomy between open and closed societies, autocracies and democracies. Um, Bob, do you wanna go on that one first or? Yeah,
4: just briefly, I mean, I do think that, that a liberal democracy uh, is under threat and I, I, I really believe that. I see it every day, the extent to which our arguments, which strike everybody in this room as sort of common sense are not, n- not necessarily accepted uh, globally. Um, and we need to understand the number of truly bad actors out there. Uh, and that's going to require new, new mechanisms and new ways of defending ourselves. I think we already have a lot of institutions that, that focus on that. Don't forget, NATO itself at its formation was supposed to be a place where those discussions happened. They don't very much. NATO's become almost exclusively a military alliance. Um, I also like the idea very much of uh, Fiona's idea, which I agree with completely, which is you need to start with a number of countries that have a shared experience and a shared perspective and that are not superpowers. Uh, because not being a superpower is actually an advantage in connecting you with most countries because most countries aren't superpowers. Um, and so you need to, we need to lead on that score. But we also need to lead with a bit of humility because I think there's still a sense and we certainly see that in the response to the Ukrainian uh, the invasion of Ukraine there's a sense from a number of other countries who whose immediate response to what's happened is what aboutism well what about what you did what about this what about and you can condemn that and say this isn't the moment for that but you also have to recognize it as a reality so in our construction of a dialogue about democratic and liberal values, again, based on what some speakers said, it's about what we do, not what we say. And I also think we need to understand that democracy itself is seriously challenged in this hemisphere. And in particular, I think we have to understand it's seriously challenged in the United States. And that's something we have to be aware of. And, and uh, it's not... We can't say it too loudly because we, it gets us into trouble with some people, but we do have to say it clearly enough among ourselves that we're under no doubts as to what's happening.
1: So I was struck and pleased by uh, David Coletto's um, uh, public opinion uh, polling on uh, support for from Canadians for support for democracy promotion, democratic actors. And uh, so my question is, what can and what should Canada be doing specifically right now? And, you know, i caveat as, as chair of the parliamentary centre, of course, I believe that the government should be giving us money to, to, to work on this. And Bob, uh, who started Forum of the Federations, would, would feel the same way. But so what, what specifically should the Canadian government be doing right now to advance democracy? Do you want to
2: start, Joe, or do you want to well, think, I'll start? About, I, OK. I, and I don't want at all to... Uh, um, to demean or dismiss the importance of being fully engaged on major issues. But I think that uh, on issues that are now major, but I think that part of our capacity is that we do have a capacity to coalesce others. And we have a capacity to coalesce others who who are not as democratic as we are, who do not share all of our values some of it is is simple fraternity i mean we are a member of la Francophonie. we are a member of the commonwealth we have these historic connections that go back i'm not sure it's always risky to know what you do with a multicultural population in terms of of dealing with its its uh, roots outside but there is great knowledge here uh, that uh, can be tapped to see if what kind of alliances there should be struck i just think we have to be uh, let me say, a, a lowercase A activist uh, country. We have to take a look at this as a role, that, this question of, of uh, coalition building towards a purpose, coalition building towards a purpose that is increasingly important. There are not a lot of countries that are, are good at it. We happen to be unusually skilled at it, and it should be a central part of our... Um, uh, of our approach in terms of, I can't, I could go down a list. I'm not going to try to do it right now. I haven't written my response, Uh, but, (laughs) but it's, we tend to get preoccupied by the headline issues of the day. The issues where we are likely to make some progress is something that is important, but not necessarily in the headlines. And then look for allies, who else is interested in this? What possibility might we, uh, might we move forward? I I really think this is a, um, I mean, I can remember <laughs> it, happened, it happened that I was there when the Trade Department and the External Affairs Department came together again uh, all those years ago. And uh, there was uh, a great fascination with, uh, uh, with trade and with foreign policy. In fact, the most effective international agency at that time was CEDA. Uh, which had nothing to do with these kinds of things and operated outside our our sphere. I'm not talking here about development assistance. I'm simply talking about areas where we have a competence and where there is a need where we can take uh, some leadership. And I think that if we begin to do that, not everywhere, but on a selected uh, number of topics, I think that we will change the ethic of, uh, the the attitude of Canadians uh, towards, uh, towards international policy. And I think we will also become uh, more effective uh, in and beyond our sphere.
3: And I think if I can add to that, I think the pragmatism of looking for those kinds of alliances over a specific problem isn't about proselytizing democracy and liberal democracy. It's about pragmatically building those kinds of relationships because any other country that is going to be on some sort of democratic journey isn't on the same democratic journey that we are at. And one of the things where Canada excels abroad is not exporting a model, but talking about the underlying fundamental issues. And if I could tell tales, the first time, Bob, that I met you was a former of federations talk on Somalia when you were talking about federalism to a group of Somali parliamentarians in Nairobi who claimed you as their premier as well. So they were particularly <laughs> pleased to see you back. Um, but it wasn't about this is the Canadian version of federalism. It's these are the underpinnings to the issue and you build something that is your own. These are some ideas to get you started. And I think that there's something to that that's about understanding the fundamentals of this. And so the other policy initiative that I would just sort of want to give a plug for is education. And that when we see, and this isn't building schools and putting everyone in school, which of course are very laudable goals, but when you look at how young people are educated and you think about promotion of democracy, promotion of open societies and being able to constructively engage with difference, constructively engage with complexity and resist autocracy, if you have critical thinking skills in schools, if you have some of the digital literacy that was that was mentioned on one of the other panels, if you have support to teachers about how you deal with the complex historical narratives in their own societies, how you facilitate dialogue in schools, all of that combines to create another generation that will be more positively disposed to these sorts of democratic principles, the pluralist principles that we're, we're trying to espouse. But again, that's a very pragmatic approach.
4: Just uh, a couple of things. One is, um, I think we could do a better job uh, without promoting the forum or the parliamentary center. We could do a better job of really championing the institutions in the country that actually have built up over 20, 25 years. And compared to let's say Norway or Sweden or others who created institutions that they pump a lot of dough into on a regular basis. And by the way, so do our our libertarian friends in the United States. The National Endowment for yeah. Democracy has a lot of money and Republicans and Democrats don't agree on very much, but they agree on the fact that they want those institutions to be very healthily supported by their Congress. We don't do the same. No. And so we we don't get the profile that that I think people would like us to have. And we, we also don't have the ability to be substantively more present than, than we are in these discussions. And we have a lot more depth in doing this than anybody realizes. A lot more people with vast experience in sharing their, um, their knowledge and their, their wisdom. And my last comment is to say that after my meeting with Somali Canadians in, in, in Somalia, I said to one of them, I said, if only all of you had stayed in Ontario, I would still be premium.
1: (laughs) (laughs) like that one.
0: Uh, You can run in Somalia. I can run in Somalia. (laughs) There you go.
4: Mogadishu East or something. (laughs) Okay,
1: Okay, so um, time for closing remarks. And as part of your closing remarks, um, what book are you reading? Um, Joe, do you want to start?
2: I'm not good to admit what book I'm reading.
1: Uh, we can make one up. <laughs> um,
2: I don't think I have a particular closing remark. I think this is a, this uh, is a, is an important discussion. I hope it will be engaged. I hope we don't leave this all to others. Uh, I, I mean, it's um, there are others here who've who've uh, served within a bureaucracy. There's a sense that bureaucracies are inherently resistant to inspiration. They're not. You have to find your way and you have to push your way. And uh, but uh, if uh, if and we're talking here not about a concept we agree on the concept we're talking about here uh, about how the canadian capacity can be applied and where and not necessarily in headlines and not in a parade but in a way that can be effective a lot of you will have some views about that uh, they'd have to be considered they, they can't be crazy off the wall views no, no one here would have those uh, but there does need to be i think particularly if i may say so particularly now, I think uh, there is a need uh, for some specific suggestions as to areas in which without great cost, Canada could be uh, persuasively uh, more persu- persuasively present in the world. You know,
3: I think one of the themes that I see through all of these discussions, you'll unsurprised to hear is that you know pluralism is really the thread that runs through all of this our ability to manage across differences our ability to connect with those whose values we don't completely share but we find common ground we find common purpose and that's something that we strive to do in canada as a society but need to translate that or can translate that more in the multilateral sphere and i think that that gives us a real opportunity to be a leader that is leading from a place not of necessarily privilege or at the forefront, but really trying to build these kinds of, um, these kinds of coalitions for, for common purpose and recognizing that each comes with a worldview that is valid, that is not that we want to impose a particular perspective, but that we seek to see how these various worldviews can be working together in a way that is cooperative, a way that is collaborative, a way that is respectful of populations around the world. I feel like that's really an ethos that we have in Canada that we can be, to use Nahid's um, uh, phrasing again, more muscular about how we bring that out into the world. And in terms of what I'm reading, I'm embarrassed to say that it is um, sitting on my desk, so I haven't actually cracked the spine, but I'm really excited to read it. I've um, ordered Kamal Al-Solai's um, book, which is specifically on belonging. For those of you who don't know, he um, was previously in, in Toronto with now the Toronto Metropolitan University, if I have that right, um, and now head of journalism at UBC, and it's called The Return, and it's specifically looking at the evolution of notions of belonging in his own life from Yemen to Toronto and now Vancouver. And I think it's a really good way of reflecting on how we all understand belonging in our own societies as well as in the global space that we're in. Bob.
4: Well, as well as uh, brushing up on my Orwell, which uh, I've been doing doing a lot of lately, the UN is a place where you really have to have Orwell as your guide in order to (laughs) see you through the insanity of uh, international discourse. Uh, I'm also reading a terrific book on Russia, uh, which is by a Washington Post reporter named Carolyn Belton called Putin's People, uh, which is also very good. Uh, And i am just started um, a book by two reporters from the New York Times, uh, Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns on, uh, it's called This Will Not Pass. It's a book about the last two crazy years in the United States. It's a very good book.
1: Thanks. So I'll tell you what I'm reading because uh, Jeff Simpson's in the in the room, and it was a book that he gave me. And I just finished it, written by Martha Piper and Indira Samasastira on. Uh, called Nerve, and it's on uh, leadership. And it's it's great. And I'm now reading um, Turn Right at Machu Picchu because we're going to Peru oh, on Thursday night. So um, I thank the panel. Um, Colin, I'm giving you uh, three extra minutes um, to move to the next panel. And uh, thank you very much, Bob Ray, Meredith Preston McGee, and Joe Clark.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. Remember, you can find the podcast on iTunes or wherever else podcasts are found. If you like the show, please remember to give us a rating. It really helps the podcast grow. You can also find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI, and thanks go out to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on The Global Exchange.